The Federal Trade Commission has proposed a rule to ban non-compete employee contracts. Federal services contractors are decidedly not of one mind on this issue. For more, we turn to the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. Stephanie, let me begin with, is the council questioning whether the FTC even has the legal authority to do this? Good morning, Tom, and thanks for having me. I want to be very careful that as a trade association, we don't offer legal advice uh, or accounting advice, to be honest, to to our member companies. But we are questioning what the end goal is for this kind of proposed rule, which would essentially ban employers from entering into non-competes and to rescind existing non-compete clauses for their, their employees. We have members on both sides of this particular fence. We have companies that have other ways of uh, incentivizing their employees to stay um, and to stay with them. One of our companies calls it stickiness. They like to create stickiness for, for their employees. And then we have other particularly small businesses that say, you know, we spend so much time training and sharing our trade secrets with these employees. And it's really a loss when a large company or, or another company at least can poach them or take them away from us with our trade secrets. And so, you know, we have companies on both sides of this fence, some who think it's not a big deal and some who think it's a very big deal. Right. And so you will do what then in in commenting on this proposed rule? Because you do have several views on it. We've gone to our member companies and said, tell us what impact this will have. You know, we, we can talk a little bit about the, the theory behind it, but really, what is the real world impact? Will it, this proposed rule, if it takes effect, make you change your business model as it pertains to your employees? And so we are waiting to hear back from them. The comments are due back to the government on by March 20th. And so uh, I suspect what our comments will include will be things like, you know, on one hand, this, on the other hand, that. One thing that we are considering including in our comments is the fact that the government itself sees value in non-compete when it comes to their own employees. And I'll just offer an example here is if you are a senior official at an agency um, and you decide to leave that agency, oftentimes you might have a one or two year agreement with, with the government that you will not pursue certain lines of work. That is in and of itself a non-compete agreement. I guess they would argue a parallel would be if we said you can't work for Canada or Mexico for two years as opposed to you know, another company. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. But and obviously the non-competes, um, I mean, they don't call them non-competes. They're calling them cooling off periods or what have you. It is that if you were a government employee at a certain level, you can't go work for certain kinds of industry. You can't do certain kinds of work for one to two years. That is um, restricting what those employees can do, what kind of work they can seek after government employment. You know, I think it's interesting to see um, the FTC and the government try to impose non-competes, um, the banning of non-competes uh, here with industry. You know, aside from whether it's a good idea, I'm surprised it's not coming from the Labor Department rather than the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah, it, that is interesting. And we do wonder why that is the case. But I do highlight that the, the Labor Department has released lots of proposed rules in the last little while. They are um, inundated, I think, with a lot of the rulemaking activity. And um, it's just a curiosity to me that, that FTC released this proposed rule and not DOL. I guess at the end of the fiscal year, contractors can go contracting officer shopping to be able to just find a place that has capacity. So maybe the FTC had more capacity in the rulemaking than the Labor Department did. This is a known phenomenon. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And here we are in the post-debt ceiling period. The emergency effects haven't really kicked in because the government is operating under extraordinary measures. But this is something that uh, contractors and the association are 
are watching with some trepidation also. We are watching this very, very closely. You know, uh, if you look back in the history of the United States, we've had a technical default that was in the Carter administration. And, you know, every time the debt ceiling comes up, we start hearing rumblings about what a default might do to the United States, certainly reduces our credit rating, etc. Then you can read about that in in all sorts of of media. Um, But I would say, you know, from a government contractor perspective, we are watching this very closely. The extraordinary measures that are already in place um, were put into place last week on the 19th. They are things like reinvesting funds in certain government accounts, retirement accounts. Um, and certainly that is something that um, the Treasury wants to make them whole once this debt ceiling uh, issue is in the past. But there are other emergency measures that are possible. And I think at the end of the day, you know, a lot of this will have impact particularly on publicly traded companies and to see um, what access to capital would be like, the cost of borrowing, et cetera, going forward. Right, because the merger and acquisition climate, especially in the federal contractor area, is not really very strong this year and was not that strong last year. No, you know, if you look at the mergers and acquisitions market, um, targets are scarce. Uh, There are not a lot of targets that are open for mergers and acquisitions. And even for some that are, uh, the Department of Justice and others have really questioned whether some mergers and some acquisitions should take place. So, you know, this is this is an interesting dynamic within the marketplace, um, and the debt ceiling certainly does not make it any better. Yeah, so some of that is the financial situation, the stock market situation, the valuations, but also because you sort of have a hair-trigger government with respect to antitrust at the moment. Exactly, yep. All right, well, let's move on to another topic I wanted to ask you about, something a little bit more down-to-earth here, and that is the Veterans Affairs Department's Transformation 21 Total Technology Next Generation 2 Two for Tang. I don't know. It looks like something you'd mix with water and taste like orange juice. Anyway, this RFP is out. Five-year opportunity. What's the uh, reaction on the street to that one? So PSE member companies, are, we're very excited uh, to get on what we call T4NG, which is what you exactly what you described, the Transformation 21 Total Tech Next Generation contract. It was a multi-year contract, task order-based, et cetera, but it reached its ceiling early. And so they are recompeting it as T4NG2, so the Next Generation 2. What is a little bit off-putting about the situation right now is the VA released the draft RFP on a Friday before a three-day weekend with a seven-day calendar day turnaround to to get comments and questions from industry. Um, so things not were cool. Due, not, not cool at all, because really it amounts to four business days, right? Or really three and a half. Um, at the end of the day, this is a 60-plus billion-dollar opportunity. What is unfortunate is because industry was surprised by this, you know, people were onboarding to the original contract as late as last year in 2022, they spent lots of money to get onto that contract without any re- you know, return on their investment. And now they have to recompete for this. And it really seems with such a tight turnaround that the VA is not particularly interested in industry feedback. And that is, I think, a, a strategic error on the VA's part. PSC did submit comments by the deadline of January 20th. And part of it included the fact that this timeline seems very, very rushed. Um, And if they really seriously want industry feedback, they need to give it enough time. Right. They can act in haste and repent at leisure, as some of these large uh, GWACs tend to go sometimes. They can be delayed for years by solicitation phase protests. Have any members protested the thing outright? Not that I'm aware of, but I wouldn't be surprised if someone had and said, you know, obviously this is this is going way too fast. One additional issue that I want to raise for your, for your listeners, Tom, is that, you know, the Biden-Harris administration has had this big push to use small businesses. And we've seen that in several different forums. What I hope the 
Veterans Affairs Department realizes is when you have a vehicle where small businesses onboarded less than six months ago um, and you're recompeting it, they might not be able to afford to recompete, to put together the bid, to figure out the teaming arrangements for this particular contract, Next Generation 2. And so I hope they are thinking through the longer term implications on the industrial base, including small businesses. All right. And just to quickly hear the NIST Cybersecurity Framework 2 Dot o, also concept paper out, kind of like an RFP, if you will, a concept paper. And NIST, of course, is very generous with, with commenting periods and solicitation of comments in general. Reactions there? It's a really great contrast. If you, We just talked about the VA and its tight timelines. NIST had a request for information come out just about a year ago. Uh, and we submitted comments. Uh, they incorporated some of those comments. They're going through another cycle now. And I mentioned it was a year ago when they asked for initial comments. Uh, now they're having workshops, etc. We are very pleased with how they're handling this. We need to unpack their concept paper a bit. It was just dropped on January 19th and comments are due March 3rd. So we expect to comment and participate in this um, industry feedback set of workshops. All right, VA, we hope you're listening to how NIST does it. Do it not before <laughs> a long weekend and give people three months. Something like that would be helpful, yeah. All right. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought well you know take a look at it and see, see you know throw, send in my information, and lo and behold I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. And, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, 
getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, it's often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism and, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded, you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yep. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics it, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and, uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experience the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the 
founding uh, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.